Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed. I am your host, Dr. Kara King, and Happy New Year to you all. We made it to 2021. Can you even believe it? I wasn't quite sure there for a moment. And I want to start out by thanking you all for your patience as Unscrubbed has taken a bit of a hiatus. We've been working really hard behind the scenes to make this show even better, and we are back and ready to rock. You can look forward to our podcast now being released every other week, and we have some absolutely incredible guests lined up that you won't want to miss. So hang on, folks. It's going to be amazing. To start off the new year, our first interview is with Ashira Nolan, who is an absolute force. Her friends know her as Lash, and she's a medical student at Harvard, as well as the very first black woman class president there. Now in this episode, Lash opens up about systemic racism, bringing truth to where it is hidden, and her incredible gift of writing. I hope you enjoy this inspiring and truly thought-provoking interview. thrilled to have LaShira Nolan here. She is known as Lash, and I can't believe that she made time for us on this Friday afternoon. She is a medical student out at Harvard, currently out in California because of all this virtual business with COVID, and she is just an amazing, spectacular human, and we are so lucky to have you on our show today. So welcome, Lash. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm super excited for our conversation. When you sent me the invitation to join you, I said, yes, I have to do it. You did. I couldn't believe it. I was like, there's no way she's going to agree to this. You are so busy, but you are on board. So thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so Lash, I first found you through your New England Journal of Medicine article titled How Medical Education is Missing the Bullseye. And this is a really powerful piece where you summarize the failings of the academic medical programs at training non-biased physicians. And you really hit upon the impact of systemic racism within our medical training. And it really struck me really deeply. You know, I have my master's in medical education and I'm the associate program director here of the MIGS program at Cleveland Clinic. And it just really struck me deeply. And so um, I really wanna dive into this, you know, where this came from when you wrote it and your experiences um, through your training. But before we dive into those details, I really want to hear about you. I want to hear about your story because you have a really great story. Thank you. <laughs> I want to hear about it. So you were born and raised in California. Yep. Is that right? Yep. Mm-hmm. By your mother. Yes. Amazing human, woman, everything. And I want to hear about your science competition. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So so that was third grade Ambler Elementary School. I tell my mom like the night before, like, hey, I forgot to tell you, but there's like this science fair tomorrow and um, we got to we got to submit something. Right. And she's like, all right. So we go to the grocery store. We like find this project on Google with goldfish and how they respond to light and night and all that stuff. And my classmate found it absolutely fascinating and all I remember is the next day when they had like all the because you have to do like the little uh trifold cardboard thing and you post it and I walked into the auditorium and mine had this blue ribbon on it and I was like what did I get first place <laughs> and I still have that medal I mean my mom she like she she definitely has it somewhere in the house but um when I was still living with mom I had my medal proudly on the 
display next to like my basketball trophies and stuff because that was this defining moment where I was like, wow, scientific reasoning. I love it. And I think also growing up, I always had this idea that physicians were like superheroes and I thought that they were so cool. And I think in that moment, that same year, dressed as a physician for Halloween and then winning the science fair, I was like, yeah, science is the wave and that's, and that's where I want to go. So it was, it was, it was definitely the defining moment. <laughs> It felt good. Yeah. yeah. It felt good. Right? That blue ribbon. You're like, I want more of those. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I love how your mom rolled with it, right? Like typical third grader. You're like, by the way, tomorrow morning, I have like a huge thing due. Right. So can we make that happen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Like like tonight, can we do it? And that's my mom all day, every day. Um, because even though in my community, I had never seen black physicians or we didn't have anyone in the healthcare field in our family, she always just gave so much to me and my dreams and she never wavered at anything that I brought up like oh because when I first wanted to become a doctor I said I wanted to be a neurosurgeon astronaut which is like what <laughs> and she was like yeah of course you can do it and that's just how my mom is she just goes with the punches and she's just always breathing life into my dreams and to my existence so yeah shout out to mommy Wow. So not a neurosurgeon or an astronaut. You wanted to like do the whole thing. Yeah. I was like, I want to fix the brain while I'm on my way to Mars. <laughs> <laughs> Your mom was like, yes, and you can. Right. Girl, you got a blue ribbon. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. So you're currently a medical student. So you're kind of playing around with like clinical stuff, right? Feeling out different subspecialties. It's wicked early in your training, I know. But are you still thinking like surgical type things or are you still, are you split? Or where are you at with that? I think that now I, I'm, we're actually taking a neurology. We're like in our neurology block right now and I'm falling in love with the, in love with the brain all over again. And I think that I'm probably going to go into um, something with pediatrics just because I, I really love this idea and I really value this idea of prevention. And one of the gap years that I took, I actually did a year of service in Chicago with AmeriCorps and I was a health educator. And it felt so great to work with students who were in high school and to talk to them about different habits and different ways that they can really take agency over their own health. Um, and just looking at my family and, and whenever I would treat older patients, it was almost like, wow, if I could have just had this conversation with you like 20, 30 years prior, I think we'd be in a different space. And then also if I could have like figured out what policy change was needed for you to have access to the things that you need right now, I wonder how things could have changed. So I think I would really love to have a career where I'm doing uh, pediatrics, but then also some work in government and public policy, public health in that realm. So yeah, but I mean, still I'm like, I kind of low-key want to be a neurologist in the back of my mind too. So. <laughs> <laughs> so many options. It's a good problem to have, right? When you like too much, that's a good thing. Yes, yeah. yes. That's yeah. good to hear. <laughs> yeah. And I'm just going to do a plug for GYN, man. I love gynecology and we have a fellowship in mm -hmm. pediatrics pediatric and adolescent care, just so you know. Okay. And it's, and it's good. Yeah, it's good. So you just put that in the back of your mind. It's an OBGYN residency and then a, a couple of years after, and it's, it's an awesome field. You'd be a really good fit for that. I can just tell with your passion for the underserved, you would be amazing. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. Seed planted. <laughs> that's my job for, the, for, for this podcast. Uh, moving on. <laughs> plant, plant a seed of GYN. <laughs> 
you brushed upon your time in Chicago with AmeriCorps. And I know you, you, I know you also traveled to Spain, right? In Madrid and did some work out there. Mm-hmm. And I saw that you created a lecture series to engage your learners in, this, in these really important topics of Black American culture and health disparities and social justice work. Can you talk to me about how you created that curriculum? How did you navigate that needs assessment? How did that feel when you, when you taught that? taught that lecture series? Yeah, um, so I, I studied abroad in Madrid during my junior year of college. And when I went to Madrid, loved it so much. That's the first time that I learned how to use public transportation. I'm from LA, so we have public transportation, but it's a little rough. It's, it's different than Madrid's, that's for sure. So so I got there and, and I was just learning so much about the world and I had this inkling that I had to come back. And um, when, I re- when I applied for the Fulbright grant, I was actually placed in Galicia, which is the most northwest province of Spain, right above Portugal. And I noticed, of course, that there weren't many black people there. Oftentimes, I was the only black person walking down the street in, in the entire area. I was in the city, La Coruña, which is like the, the largest city there um, besides Santiago, I think. It was just such an interesting experience. And as I would talk to my, my roommates and as I would talk to my friends that I was making, I also played on a basketball team there, they just were completely unaware of the challenging realities of what it's like to be in the United States of America because I think that the history that is told, I think that the the images that are exported, they always kind of make it all squeaky clean, like, yeah, you know, we have, you know, Nicki Minaj and great music and everyone lives with the white picket fence and the cul-de-sac. And I'm like, wait, do y'all know the history of the cul-de-sac? Like, do you know how we got there and the problematic policies and then how that all plays out in in health outcomes and and all of these types of things? So I really wanted to teach my students that. And I also wanted to teach them the importance of looking at your community and seeing how systemic injustice is also playing out in your own backyard. Because the first thing that I asked them when I when I taught my first lesson was, if you all could make a, a change in the world or do something to, to fight injustice, what would you do? And a lot of them, their minds went to Africa. They said, oh, well, I want to go to Africa and I want to implement this program. And I see these, these commercials with starving youth and I want to support them. But I'm like, but what about what's happening right here in our community in La Coruña? Because I could have sworn on my way here, I saw someone outside the grocery store who also was in need. And we also have this immigration crisis that's happening because of a lot of problematic systemic things going on. So I really wanted to get them to think really critically about those those issues. And it was so cool because at the end of the year, we came together and raised funds for this organization called Axum, where we were supporting women who were immigrants um, and also survivors of domestic violence. And it was just such a powerful project and to see them get engaged and like, you know, one of the students created the shirt that we use for the for the march that we did. And I think that that was really, I felt like that was my purpose. And I feel like that's the essence of Fulbright, right? It's about exchange and, and, and bringing these different ideas to the forefront. So such an amazing experience. And I think that that's something that I try to continue to do is, is bring the truth where sometimes it's hidden. Man, that is so powerful, right? To like just implement a sustainable like shift in your lens at looking at your own community, right? And yeah. you're so right. Like, how do you want to help? Well, I want to travel global medicine and do this thing. And then you look, you're like, I'm like, I'm in Cleveland. There is so much work to be done here in Cleveland, right? Like in your own backyard, shifting that lens and looking at it differently is 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 life changing. And so I applaud your efforts. That is that is just really incredible work. 
amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. I want to pivot and talk about your writing a little bit. Your writing is beautiful. Thank you. (laughs) Like I said, I was introduced in your New England Journal of Medicine perspective piece, but right then I started like diving into all of your writing and I, it's just, you, you are a beautiful writer. I'm just curious, what does writing do for you? Like it must touch a place really deep in your soul because you're really gifted, gifted with it. So this must be an outlet for you, right? So talk to me about talk to me about this journey of how you've become such a gifted writer and and what it does for you. Yeah, well, that's such an awesome question because growing up, what writing was for me was how I would express my love for the people in my family. So whenever it was someone's birthday or a celebration or Mother's Day, I would always like write my mom like these really long cards and be like, oh, thank you so much for taking me to basketball practice every day and everything like that. And I I just always enjoyed doing that. It was kind of like the way that I expressed myself. And... I remember when I first started to to go through uh, my experiences in undergrad. I went to a, a Jesuit institution, Loyola Marymount University, and they're really big on reflection and they're really big on becoming a person with and for others. So that was the first time that I started going on like retreats. Like I went on a one week silent retreat where, you know, we just sat and we just journaled. And that was when I really started to get in, into like, writing as a way of healing, as a way of thinking about the things that are happening in my life and kind of like giving me that moment of clarity. And throughout my gap years being in Spain, um, often feeling like isolated, right? Like I said, I was, you know, the only black woman in this in this province. And I think that all of that just kind of helped me hone that skill of expressing myself. And once I, you know, went through my gap year in in Chicago and I started to see, I literally would see the demographics of this train shift as I went from the south side to the north side every day. It was like, okay, there's so much inequity here. There's so much systemic racism here. And then once I got to medical school and I saw all of those things also playing out in this micro environment of medical education, it's kind of like all of those experiences forced me to start writing. So my first published piece or the first time that I ever wrote was how medical education is missing the bullseye. So I actually, you know, it, it got published, um, you know, recently, but I actually wrote that way back in, in late maybe like late October, I actually wrote that. And from that point on, you know, um, the Health Careers Opportunities Program was in danger of not getting funding in, for the next year. So then I wrote an op-ed about that and started a petition around that. And then, you know, and then COVID hit. And I was like, oh my gosh, like no one's paying attention to the custodial staff. Everyone's moving the students off campus, but no one's talking about them. So I think that now I feel like I write um, because it, it heals me. And I also feel like I have such a privilege of being a medical student at Harvard and to really be a reflection of the sacrifices and the successes of my family that I feel like I have an obligation to use this platform to make sure that I'm exposed the the truths, going back to that point, that aren't often told at this level. So it's really just a reflection of like my observations, but in in that process is also extremely healing for me personally. I love it. Your mom must love those those cards, man. You know, she keeps every single one. (laughs) Oh, you know she does. Oh, that's so powerful though. Oh, I love that. And are you still journaling? Do you still journal? Yeah, I, I still do journal. Um, but I think most of my journals turn into op-eds now. <laughs> yeah. Dear journal, bullseye. <laughs> yeah. Ah. <laughs> 
I love it. And you know, that reflective process is so important, not just for self-healing, right? But even for, I go back to medical education or, um, you know, I'm, I do a lot of surgical coaching. And so with surgical coaching, very infrequently do we actually reflect back our, on our own surgical practice and our own cases or when we're learning when you when you become a resident you get you know even more busier and very infrequently do we actually reflect back on 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 our on our clinical days or our surgical days that's going to carry with you in such a positive way all the way through lash like hold on to that reflective process hold on to it and it's so easy to let it go right when you get to the grind it's so easy to to stop you know taking time to do that but I love that that's built into your routine. Hold, hold it, hold it close. I yeah, love it. thank you. I will. A lot of it now is voice memos because I don't always have time to write. So sometimes I'll just do like a two minute, like, yeah, I read Becoming by Michelle Obama, and these are my favorite insights. And then you know, just keep on moving after that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I love it. Yes. 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 <laughs> All right. So let's talk about your article uh, titled "How Medical Education Is Missing the Bullseye." So for our listeners who haven't had the chance to read it yet. Can you summarize what it's about? Yeah, so basically um, what this piece is about is it's about my experiences as as being a black woman in our society and, and just this recognition that usually the reference for everything in our society is the white male. And I kind of talk about how the first time that I saw this come up was with an example of a CPR class and how all of the mannequins that we saw were male-bodied. And then after that, when I was in a microbiology class learning about Lyme disease and the only image that we were shown about how erythema migrans presents in a patient was on white skin. And one of my classmates raised their hand and said, hey, how would I recognize this? And he was a black man. He, he asked, how would I recognize this rash in someone who has a skin color similar to mine? And the professor answered the question, but really the answer was it's harder to see. And we usually don't depend on the rash for diagnosis in these patients because it's not as, as easy to recognize. Um, and then... It's, it's, it goes from there into this reflection about if we aren't able to graduate medical students and future healers who are unable to recognize different challenges for patients, whether that be in a sign from a physical exam or whether that's looking for a rash, then we really are failing as an institution because we should be strive, striving to, to serve everyone, to serve all patients of all different skin types. And I saw this gap. And I think it's a reflection of gaps that were that other folks recognized before. But I think that writing it and getting it on this scale where people could see it and really think about it was really was really powerful and and that's what how medical education is missing the bullseye is all about and I thought it was a pretty clever name honestly I was so excited about the name more than anything I was like yes I love this I am good that's nice (laughs) yeah but I mean these little micro things right they have serious health implications Right. Like by 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 us not showing, just like you said, just for this one example, the rash on different types of skin colors. Right. Brown and black skin. That means we're not diagnosing this oftentimes to a later stage. Right. That's I mean, this has serious health implications. And I like that you also included action items. Right. You didn't just say this is what's all this is what's not working well. And then mic dropped. Right. You like gave us actual action, like action items of how we can implement change within our system. 
which I loved. Yeah, yeah. I definitely wanted to give folks something tangible to to walk away with. Um, my mom always told me, like, you know, don't don't complain about something if you don't have a solution for it. And I was like, okay, mom. You know, I always have her in the back of my mind. And I think it's easy to have conversations about these really challenging topics and feel discouraged because you don't even know where to start to go forward. So I really want to give folks tangible first steps that they can start to take um, to really make an impact. I love it. Yeah. And things just as simple as like include include slides using different images. And you gave some really great resources in your article about where we can find those slides. Simple as that, right? Like don't make the last slide like, yep, this is worse in, you know, black Americans and have that be it. Like there's reasons why these things are the way they are, right? Like hundreds and hundreds of years of, of what we have done has created the, you know, the culture that we have now. So exactly. I, I love that. Yeah, it's really important for us to, to have these changes and implement them now, not just talk, but actually do things about them. Yeah. In regard to action items, so we're in the midst of a huge public health crisis on multiple levels, right? We've got this acute issue with COVID going on. We've got this chronic crisis with systemic racism, which is rampant. What are your thoughts on how we, and we meaning like the global we of physicians and fellows and residents and medical students, how can we use our tools, our positions to help, to help change these deep-rooted issues? Do you have any suggestions, you know, within, again, like you said, like within our community, within our institution, and how we can use our role to help change this? Yeah, well, I, f I feel like there's so many different things that we could do. Um, the first thing that, that I always try to remind folks of is that this is a 400 plus year issue. So we can't expect that one task force or bringing in a chief officer uh, for equity and inclusion is going to fix the issue. We have to really look at our institutions and we have to look at the insidious ways that racism silently sucks the life out of the environment that so many marginalized folks have to live in, right? And I think that sometimes, even I've seen it over the summer with after the response to George Floyd, people were like, oh, we have to fix racism by the end of summer 2020. Like this is, you know, everyone's had this awakening and they're like, oh, we have to fix it now, you know? And I think that that's how we think <laughs> in medicine, right? We're like, yeah, you know, we have an issue, like let me fix it. But I think that, you know, really as, as medical educators and scientists, we have to fight against that. And instead of trying to automatically just fix the problem, I think we have to call back to the lessons that we were taught as pre-medical students, right? And it's all about deferred gratification. And even if that experiment fails, you have to keep trying at it. And you know, you have people spend so much time getting a PhD or even getting an MD. And we know that when you fail, you have to get back up. And I think that People need to understand that we're going to fail. People are going to say the wrong thing, but we need to not be afraid to say that and grow from it. And we need to make sure that while we're doing this in the process, that we're protecting those who are traditionally marginalized, protecting their time, making sure that if we're, we're going to ask them to serve, that we compensate them, making sure that if we're going to write papers about these issues, that we bring in the, the experts and folks who have been writing and talking about these things for years, but never had the platform. And I also think the bystander effect is so rampant in medicine because we have patients who say problematic things or we have medical students, right, who will be recognized as the doctor 
even though they're attending, you know, is right there. But because that person is a woman or because that person is a person of color, they assume that this other individual who is higher on the hierarchy of society is going to be their provider. So in those moments, people are often silent. And that silence is deafening. And that silence is, is choosing the side of the oppressor. And that's what we have to stop doing. I think we have to learn to, to start to speak up when these instances happen. And all the things that I'm suggesting are things that don't necessarily need a policy implementation to start happening. I think all of us are kind of like waiting, like, okay, I'm just going to wait for the task force to come out with their suggestions and then we're going to move on it. But no, start looking at your slides, start looking at your department, start looking at really tangible ways that you can increase diversity, increase the presence of, of black folks and folks who traditionally aren't in these spaces. And also making sure that when you bring them in, that they have space to thrive and feel safe in that environment. I love so many things that you just said. I don't even know where to start breaking that down. There's a lot. I, I just don't even know where to start, it's Lash. It's okay. My, I just, you you asked me God. such a great question. I was just like, <laughs> yes, I need to just tell her. It just felt, it just felt good. So I want to start with how we seem to talk about it, right? And I feel like talking about it can sometimes have such a stigma to it, right? Like bringing it up, like it's going to, I don't even know, like, maybe make an argument or or maybe separate people if we bring it up, but it's going to do the exact opposite, right? And I think by knowing that we're coming from a good place, right? Like you may not say the perfect thing or you may not word something the right way, but if you're coming from it from a good place and you're being transparent and you're working together to fix it, then bringing it up and just being open and forgiving, I think is just a really good place to start, right? Right. I think I think it's always important to, to consider impact versus intent, right? Sometimes people can, can in, in, intend not to do harm, but then realizing that their impact can have a really great weight. But even with that, I think that if people were to say something and just acknowledge the elephant in the room that is systemic racism, that would mean so much because people are afraid that saying something is divisive, but they have to understand that not saying anything is that much more divisive because that means that you're you're choosing to continue to benefit from this power structure. Silence is complacency, right? Yeah. By not saying anything, you're going along with it. That's just like you said, it's almost worse. And so bringing it up and bringing it to the surface and changing your lens is so important. And I also loved how you're right. We're like, well, we're going to make a, a lunchtime, noontime lunch talk about racial disparities and like call it good, right? Or and like make someone like present who's in an expert in it. But no, like you wouldn't have somebody lecture to me about a hysterectomy who doesn't do hysterectomies, right. right? Like you have experts <laughs> in the field lecture about expert, you know, what their expertise is in. And so recruiting people to integrate a curriculum who are experts in this, I mean, people dedicate their entire lives to racial disparities, right? And systemic racism. So recruiting those people in to so true experts are lecturing on it, I think is another really, really good point. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Because right now, I feel like students are often the experts or faculty members who like don't have the time and they're, they're, they're serving on these committees and things for free and it's taken away from their so many opportunities and it's, uh, it's really complex and I think it's so important to, like what you said, bring in the experts and if you have experts who are at, at your institution, no matter where you know their level is, student, resident, make sure you compensate them because it's work. 
it's work that they're dedicating to the cause, absolutely. And whether that be compensation through, like you said, like publications or class credit or scholarship money or grants or something, but you have to acknowledge their time, absolutely. Okay, I follow you on Twitter, man. You are a rock star. I have like 10 followers and it's like my mom and my brother uh-huh. and you are amazing. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> like, God, those are the most so important good. followers, though. <laughs> exactly. Unfortunately, my grandma and, doesn't have Twitter, but she has Facebook. And I'm like, if my grandma hasn't liked the post, then I might as well delete it because it just... Get it off. Get it off. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You posted something within the past week, and you said, the persistent challenge of deciding when to respond to problematic statements and microaggressions in academia is exhausting. I feel like I'm always in a constant battle to protect my energy while also speaking truth to power. Mm. Can you tell me, where were you mentally when you wrote that? What did your day feel like, your week feel like, your years feel like that, that made you put that down to, the, to paper? Yeah, I think, I think that was a moment um, after class where there was someone who made a very minor microaggression. And it was as simple as, oh, your name is is very unfamiliar, right? And then went on to the next student and was like, oh, your name is so much easier. And this person was a white male, right? And, and their name was short and simple, right? It was Jim. only like three letters yeah. and that was it. <laughs> it's like, oh, wow, yeah. this is so easy, right? And it's it's one of those things where it's like, this is so small, right? Like it's it's not a big deal, quote unquote. And in that moment, I was like, okay, so do I tell this person, hey, that's not the best way to go about this. If you think that a name is complicated, sit with that, but there's no reason to outwardly express that and then make that individual feel like, like not good, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. Like that's way Absolutely. to put it. Not, don't make that person feel not good about you know who they are because names are really personal. And there's been a, a lot of conversation around that with Black women in, in in MedEd of various levels about names and what that means. And I was like, you know, I could say something, but then also that's going to be more work for me. That's going to be more explaining for me. And and I don't really know if it it's, if, if this merits a, an op-ed because I have this exam on Friday. So it's kind of like, you know, when whenever something happens like that, I go through this differential of options. I'm like, do I say something in the moment? Do I email later? Do I write an op-ed about this? Do I tweet about it? Do I text a friend about it? And I think that that decision-making process is something that so many of us go through, maybe not in that direct order or or with those select options, but it's always like, do I respond or do I let go? Because you're always trying to protect your energy and trying to figure out if your response is going to bring you more energy or if it's going to bring you down. So in that particular moment, I just just decided, you know, I'm just going to tweet about this and I'm going to keep on moving because I have to learn what a stroke is and how to treat that. And I I can't, I don't have time. (laughs) And I'm going to give myself a stroke if I waste any more time on my brain on this. So (laughs) Exactly. So, you know, there's just those moments where you're like, you know what? Not today. Tweet and move on. Oh, but that adds up. It does. I mean, that, that, add, that just adds up. And you only have so much energy, right? You got to fill your cup. And when your cup is empty, I mean, you only have so much. You're right. And you have to figure out what's worth giving your time and your energy to. And 
Yeah, that I mean, there's publications on people's names and what that means in academia, right? I just read a paper recently about how, I don't know the specifics about it, but how professors are more likely to respond to emails with with names that are more white names versus black students. Very, I mean, it's not surprising, but I'm like, wow, you know, even then I'm like, what? Yeah. I know. And all these little things that, you know, my lens just, I mean, I, my lens hasn't seen that. It hasn't felt that. And it's, um, and I, that's why I really appreciate you opening up in these writings and your podcasts and all your publications because it just really helps, helps me see things so much differently. So again. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad that you're reading and, and it, it brings me joy to know that me doing this is actually leading to some real change and real growth in, in, in different areas. So thank you. Absolutely. All right. Just a, a couple more questions, if you don't mind. No, Are you doing that's okay totally on fine. Time? Yeah. Thank you. It's like Friday afternoon. You had a big neuro exam today. You're flying back to Boston tomorrow. And I'm like, hey, you want to yeah, ch- no, chat about no, mentorship? No. I'm enjoying our <laughs> conversation, you. so no problem. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm just curious about mentorship. So mentorship is so important in our field, yes. especially in our field, right? It just really helps kind of um, formulate our professional development. And I know you mentioned that you saw your first black doctor when you, I think, were in college. Mm-hmm. Is that what you said? In college? Yeah. And so talk to me about mentorship. How do you find your mentors? Like, talk to me just about that process. Yeah. Well, I think when I was an undergrad, I would just kind of gravitate toward professors who were doing really awesome work and and also like gravitated toward me and they were always supportive and helpful and I think that in medicine it's a similar process but I think at a place like Harvard Medical School where there's like 12,000 faculty members it can be challenging because you're like I don't even know where to start you know and I already considering there's just such a, a lacking of black physicians who are in academic medicine who have the bandwidth to mentor all one to 18 black students that you might have at your institution right (laughs) so it's like it's so it's so challenging and and then you know they don't necessarily get a lot of credit for that on their cvs so it, it takes away from their opportunities to do research and things like that so that they can move up and do even greater work as associate professors and that's like a whole different conversation but i think that it's it's definitely complex and complicated but I've been really blessed because I got on Twitter before I started medical school. And when I first posted, hey, you know, my name is LaShire. I'm going to be going to Harvard Medical School. There was just this outpouring of support from Med Twitter. And it's been so amazing because um, I just got off the phone with one of my mentors. Um, and she's not even at Harvard. She's at Emory, Dr. Kimberly Manning. And she's actually uh, from L.A., from Inglewood, and just such a dope human. And I got to get on the phone with her and chat with her. Dr. Fatima Cody Stanford, um, absolutely amazing. She's at MGH and we also met through Twitter. And then Dr. Uh, Suzanne Coven, who's also at MGH and like, you know, she's uh, this amazing writer. And I think that really it's been Twitter that's been my conduit for mentorship in academic medicine, which is something I don't know a lot of people are aware of, but it's been so cool to, to have this online community that I can go to for different things. I mean, you're so right. Social media has taken on a whole new thing, right? Meaning it just it can it can just make the world feel so small, which is good. Like it connects you to these people all over the country, all over the world, and um, and it becomes huge. It's it's amazing. 
Truly, truly, truly. Yeah, it's it's is is really definitely not what I expected. Twitter. I went on Twitter to like for Black Twitter so that I can see like all the different like jokes and things and like just like the. It's just such an amazing experience. But that's that's why I got on Twitter. I was like, yeah, this is my community. This is my space. And then I figured out that. It's really turning into like this mix of like LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, like all in one news. It's yeah. it's amazing. Yeah. And I do a lot of talks on social media too and how I personally think we have a we have a professional responsibility to put out good information on these websites, right? Yes. There's so much just misinformation, not even lack of information, but actually false information that it's our I think it's our professional duty to, to put out the truth. And I know sometimes it can feel overwhelming when we have so much clinical duties and research duties, but I applaud you. I think it's really, really important to put out good information. So awesome. Yeah, awesome thank work. you. Thank you. So talk to me about young black college students and how we can help this younger population, which I know are not much younger than you. You're so yeah. young yourself. <laughs> what advice do you have for these like freshmen and sophomores and undergrad who are considering medicine how can we how can we pull them in? How can we help sponsor these kids and pull them into medicine? Because we need we just we need more black doctors, right? Yeah, one hundred percent. I think it, it has to be multifaceted. I and mean, I think number one, you definitely have to put energy and put time into the pipeline much early on. So instead of starting in high school, we definitely need to have a high school pipeline program. But I think the ones that I've seen that have been really awesome have been those that have them at various levels, talking uh, middle school, elementary school, just to get folks thinking. Because like I said, I didn't have anyone who looked like me who is a physician in my community. So the the first part is you can't be what you can't see. So it's important to start planting those seeds and and making sure that they understand that this is something that you are totally capable of achieving. I think the next step is making sure that we as healers and we as providers step up and we start to advocate for the public policies that are going to support these students in being successful. Because you can have someone who's saying, hey, you can be whatever you put your mind to, but if they don't have access to, for example, right now, not everyone has broadband internet. Um, There are kids who are starving because they're not in school. There are kids who don't have grocery stores in their community. There are kids whose parents are being disproportionately impacted because their parent is an essential worker. Kids who are going through different challenges with domestic abuse. I mean, there's, there's so many things that go beyond just, hey, like, here's a pipeline program. We also have to do the work to make sure that the society that we live in is allowing them to to successfully go through that pipeline because it's not just going to be a straight shot. So I think that doing that is is going to be so important. So making sure that we inspire youth early and making sure that we support them in in removing the conditions that make it challenging for them to achieve their dreams. I love it. You're making you're making my brain work, right? I'm looking again at Cleveland, which we have such health disparities in Cleveland. Yeah. It is just it is really, really eye-opening since I moved here. I've only been here about a year. It's really eye-opening. And it makes me want to get into the, just help integrate into the into the schools here early. And I'm wondering if this virtual platform could actually facilitate us getting into their schools earlier from a, from a scheduling standpoint. You're just making me think, you know, like taking busy docs here and like getting them over to, to schools can be really hard, but they're already on a virtual platform and we can integrate some kind of mentorship sponsorship, sponsorship through a virtual platform. Wouldn't that be awesome? 
Yeah, that'd be absolutely amazing. Like today, um, we actually um, did like clinical cases and things with the pipeline program at HMS uh, called Project Success. And it's so awesome. It's for like high school kids. And like we went on and today was the GI system and the patient had like gallstones. And you could just see like their faces light up as we talked to them about these things. We also did mentorship and taught them about how do you work through um, studying for the MCAT and all those things. So I think that that would be so amazing if they could start to learn about what medicine is all about. And then also helping them garner soft skills like sending emails and talking to professors at office hours because I think sometimes we forget about those things and it can be really challenging when you get to college. I know we call those soft skills, but they're so important. Right. Soft makes them sound weak to me. Right. I want a new name. Right? <laughs> I agree. I agree. Right? That's what really makes you, right? If you can yeah. communicate well. 100%. Yeah. Awesome, Lash. Is there anything else that you want to talk about? This is your platform. Did we miss anything big that you wanna that you wanna discuss? I feel like we really hit all the, the major points. I just wanna say thank you for like I just th- this was like the most like in-depth interview that I've done with someone. Like you clearly like read different pieces and I just appreciate that so much. And I think really the last thing that I, I will want to say is it's important that we recognize all the different challenges that we've talked about and systems of oppression and, and realize that these are not the result of bias alone. It's the result of systemic racism. And the difference between those two is that bias is, is are there, there's these ideas that you have in your mind, but then once you have the power to act on them and consistently act on them because you have this system of oppression where you are the privileged person who gets the benefit from this system, that's when you really start to see it play out. And I think that it's important to recognize that that it's not just one bad apple. It's not just because one person had one bad idea. We are all living in a system where we sleep, eat, breathe all the time systemic racism because it was at the foundation of our country. So I think that if there's one thing that I really want folks to understand is, is exactly that. So thank you. Oh, Lash. So, so powerful. We have so much work to do, but I, the future is bright with you uh, helping lead us through this. I just, I can't thank you. I'm going to be following you because you are amazing. And I'm going to say, please gynecology and please come rotate at Cleveland Clinic. I'm always here for you. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) We'd love to have you, friend. We would. We'd love to have you. So thank you for all your work, Lash. Thank you so much. This was awesome. Absolutely. Until next time, take care. Okay, you too. And that is all for this episode of Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed. Join us next episode for more expert insights and perspectives. From all of us at the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons, thanks for listening.